Well, hey, good morning, church family. Good morning, man. It is, it is so good to see you guys. Before I jump into our passage for today, we actually, today's a big day for uh, the life of our church, kind of in, in the calendar year, something we do once a year. It's called Promotion Sunday. Nobody's job is changing. If those of you newer to church, what's happening is in our family ministries, all of our kids are moving up into the next grade level in our ministries. And there's one of those in particular that we want to highlight this morning, and that's those students that are going from fifth grade, leaving our kids' ministry, and going into student ministry, into middle school. It's a huge change that they're going through, and we want to acknowledge that, and we want to pray over those students and their families as they go into this next chapter. So here's what I'm going to do. I know we're stretched over three services, so there's a chance that we may not have any of those rising sixth graders here, but if you are a rising sixth grader, would you and your family stand up? Uh, we want to pray over you if you are in here. Ready, set, go, if you're here. All right, there we go. All right. All right, you stay standing. You stay standing. Church, will you join me as we pray over these families? Father, thank you. Uh, in your grace, you are allowing our church uh, to be a church uh, that's a big church family that's also partnering with families to raise the next generation. Father, we pray over these students that they would not have a spirit of fear because that's not what you've given them, but instead one of power, love, and sound judgment would they go into these, this next season of life not cowering back, but instead confident in who you have called them to be, confident as son or daughter, confident in who they are in Christ. Would you make them warriors for the gospel among their friends and their peers? Father, we pray for great help for their parents, great wisdom and guidance and strength of character for marriages. And God, in your grace, would you make families stronger, these families stronger during this season? Pray it for my own family as well. God, we love you, we need you, and we thank you for these families. We pray your protection over them and for much blessing in this next stage of life. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen. 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 Thank y'all. Thank y'all. All right. Well, man, um, Acts chapter 20, if you got your Bible, uh, while you're getting there, man, I just want to say I missed you guys so much. Um, I love being your pastor. It is a, a true joy of mine. I love preaching God's word. I have missed that. Uh, if you're new in the last six weeks, my name's Spence. I uh, work here at Mercy Church, uh, serve as the lead pastor here. And uh, each summer, this wonderful church gives me the space to unplug for just a few weeks to meet with God, to enjoy uh, my family. But I'm so excited to preach. I mean, by like Towards the end of last, uh, I guess the week before last, I was so itching to preach that I was like preaching, trying to fit it in wherever I could, like we're at dinner, and the lady's like, what would you like? And I was like, well, there's really three options when you think about it and look at the menu, and, and I want to show you the third way and how that's the best, you know, it was, I was like, no, nah, it's, it's time. Um, and, you know, I was talking to some of the other guys, especially Craig, uh, who preached last week, who was telling me, man, what I love about, um, about your church, and I had no idea, but... Mercy Church is a yeah, God church. And I was like, what does that mean? What are you talking about? He's like, man, when the word is preached and truth is heard, uh, they talk back to you. They're like, yeah, God, that's good. 
I'm like, I love, and that just, that struck that thing in me missing because I suffer from this condition that I bet some of y'all suffer from it as well. The abbreviation is FOMO. It's called fear of missing out. And I don't know if anybody else suffers from this, but I do. I love a good time. My time is limited. So I want to do the greatest possible thing I can with every single minute that I have, right? I want to maximize every minute that I have. In fact, this, this has gotten me into trouble many times, right? In college, uh, I was dating Courtney, who's my wife now, uh, and she'd get frustrated with me because I would never commit to anything for fear of missing out on a better opportunity that might come along if I actually committed to something, right? Then I got into business school and they had a name for it. They called it opportunity cost. And I was like, oh, well, this is great. If you decide on one business plan, not only do you count the cost of doing that business plan, but you count the cost of the other things that you would miss out on. I was like, thank you very much. And so I go back to Courtney and I'm like, see, I'm just smart what I'm talking about with this whole thing. And she goes, okay, well, then what is the opportunity cost of taking me out on a date? And I channeled Admiral Akbar and I was like, it's a trap. And I ran, <laughs> right? Like, no way. I don't fall for that one. But y'all, one thing I know is that that simple little thing, we all function day in, day out in this kind of opportunity cost, whatever you want to call it, all the time. There are only so many minutes, so many dollars, and one life. And if we commit to, for example, as a parent right now, if we commit to Little League Baseball, we can't do Little League Soccer. If we commit to Little League Baseball and Little League Soccer, we can't have a life, right? You have to choose one thing. Or the other, if, if you're dating, you commit to that girl, that means you can't commit to the one that might come along later, right? And in the end, the decisions we make, the dollars and minutes we spend, they reveal what it is that really matters most to us, right? We spend our lives on what we think is bet, best, on what we value over and above other opportunities. Today, we're going to see in this passage in Acts 20... We're going to see what it costs to build a church. Not financial cost. It's actually a pretty small footnote in this passage. It's about personal cost. It's about things like time, attention, mental and emotional effort, fighting enemies, saying goodbye to friends. And deeper still, today's passage is about why in the world would we do all of that? Why spend so much of our lives, thereby giving up other opportunities to build God's church? Today's about what it costs to build a faithful church, what it costs us together, collectively as Mercy Church, and what it's going to cost you personally to be a part of it. Let me say, uh, let me kind of say, if you're newer here, let me set you up to what's been going on as we've been walking through the book of Acts. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, there's a guy named Paul. He's a church planter who's been traveling all around the Mediterranean, preaching the gospel and just starting new churches. And the second half of the book of Acts is kind of just documenting all of these travels, all right? We're going to pick up in verse 17. What I want to do right before verse 17, verses 13, finishing in 17, basically Luke, our author, kind of goes on a little Google Maps step-by-step directions of where all Paul is heading, okay? I want to show you, I'm going to flip to the very back of your Bible where there is a map, okay? If you have a Bible that's not just scrolled, but one with paper, a lot of times it's got little maps in the back. I want to show you a map of where all Paul has been traveling. I hope. Is it going to come up? Yes. That was cool. All right. So this is the Mediterranean. All right. Paul has been going everywhere all over this place. And now after a whole lot of journeys up more towards Europe, he's making his way back 
because he's trying to get back to Jerusalem, all right? And once he gets back here, he's going to take his fourth and last one where he's going to go on to Rome. But in verse 17, it says he lands in Miletus, all right? We're going to zoom in. Oh, I know. All right, so we're going to zoom in, and you see Miletus right there kind of in the middle of the screen. And then about 30 miles north of Miletus is Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is the church, of course, of the Ephesians. He would later write the letter to the Ephesians, okay? So what he's going to do in verse 17 is he's going to say, hey, guys, I only have just a brief moment here in Miletus because i got to go 600 miles back to Jerusalem. So would you mind walking 30 miles or riding a horse or whatever you want to do to get there, 30 miles, come down, meet me in this little port town, and we're going to have a conversation, the elders and Paul. That's the setting for the message that we have here, all right? Good. We can take the map down. The elders are the leaders of the church in Ephesus. He's going to say towards the end of this, this is the very last time I'm ever going to talk to you. Very last time you'll ever see me. So he's giving them instructions on what to do from here. It's a young church with young leaders who are young in the faith. This is a big moment. And his word to them is, if you want to build a faithful church, it's going to come at great personal cost to you and to those you lead. You're going to give up a lot. He's going to share his own hardships and ministry. And then he's going to call them to a similar calling. This is a count the cost moment for these elders. I believe, and I've already told our elders before preaching this sermon, um, that this should be a count the cost moment for us as elders. And I believe it should be a count the cost moment for each of us here at Mercy. Will you join us in building a faithful church? If that means it's going to cost you something, if it means you can't do something else because your time, energy, and resources are going to now go to God's kingdom. So we're going to walk through this passage through Paul's Basically, it's like a sermon to the Ephesian elders, a little powwow that Luke's there for, writes it down so that we get it. Now, I'm going to show you five costs of building a faithful church. It's verse 18. When they came to him, he said to them, you know, from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. If you're going to serve the Lord... It's going to come with tears. It's going to come with trials. I promise there is heartache and heartbreak that is associated with following Jesus. If you give your life away for a cause greater than yourself, you will have that. And I promise, therefore, it requires humility. Because if you're proud and you believe that you can do it all yourself, ultimately you'll burn out. And that's because tears and trials are coming. That's why a lot of young pastors burn out. They believe that they are Superman when they are actually Lewis Lane. That's, they're reporters who are constantly in need of saving because of the trouble they get themselves into, right? This isn't even just one of the five things. That's just laying the groundwork. Paul's ministry is difficult, and ours will be too. Verse 20, you know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance Toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. Just because it was hard doesn't mean he stopped. Life's hard. 
Choosing to devote your life to the cause of Christ, which is going to mean serving others, going from house to house ministering, that's hard. And just because it's hard doesn't mean it's wrong or bad. And in fact, choosing to be faithful to proclaiming the gospel during hard times is how God refines you. And sometimes where God does his most unexpected and beautiful work. Because we're only he can get the glory for it. Some of you are well-versed in following Jesus during hard times. And he has refined you and made you into a more powerful beacon of his grace through that. And others of you, I know you're going through it now. So let's keep going. Verse 22. Now he says, I'm on my way. I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I'm going to encounter there. Except this one thing. In every town, the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But, and I think if I had one verse, I mean, all scripture's good, okay? But this is the one verse today that I'm like, it's just really standing out to me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. For my purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Now we arrive at opportunity cost. What's underneath it all? What explains Paul's actions, the cost of building a faithful church? Here's the first cost. Building a faithful church, it'll cost us our surrender. Let's just go ahead and get it out. I was going to say, it just costs us our lives. We have to surrender. Look at verse 24. When he says, I consider my life of no value. Look, this is not like a, um, like a mental health warning sign like we would often see this today, okay? He's not saying his actual physical life is worthless or something. He's saying life when it's about his dreams, his aspirations, the path that he would chart, that's no long, that opportunity cost, right? It's no longer of any value to him. That future is not valuable because he has tasted the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. And he's found something better. Is verse 24 true of you? Are you willing to go there with the Lord? I can't help but think of the um, rich young man Jesus talked about in Mark 10. All right, the young man said he's obeyed the law perfectly. He's been a good guy. Jesus says, okay, you've done everything right. Just one more thing. Sell everything you have and follow me. Sell it all. And he looked at the cost of doing that. Selling all that stuff. And the cost was too high. He couldn't get rid of that life, so he left Jesus. It's a tragedy. Um, there's this really famous sermon in Christian circles from a guy named John Piper that he preached in the year 2000. Uh, I'm actually going to reference Pastor Piper again later in the sermon. So, um, But this was right around the year 2000, which was the year I graduated high school, so it stuck with me. And what he did is like 40,000 college students, and some of y'all probably heard it, and he's, um, he's got these 40,000 college students, and he's preaching at them, and he recounts these two stories that he had read in the news that week, and one was about this young missionary couple who had died as missionaries. They were killed because they were preaching the gospel in a country that was hostile to the gospel, and they were killed for doing so, and the news was like, man, this is a tragedy about this couple. And then he reads another article, and it's about this older couple, like Stan and Jean. I don't, I don't remember who the names are, but they're like, they're, they retired, and now with their retirement, they were able to get a spot at the beach, and they spent the last 20 years really building up their seashell collection as they walked up and down the beach, right? And Piper says, 
That's the tragedy. But he says it, if you know John Piper, just with his crazy hair and everything, he's like, that's the tragedy, you know, the way if you've ever listened to him. But, but what he said is that couple bought the American dream, and they get to the end of their lives, and what do they got to show for it but seashells? He said, can you imagine standing before the Lord the moment after you die and looking up, and the Lord asks you for an account of your life, and you go, here, Lord, my shell collection, right? And he says, and he just kind of whispered, don't waste your life. And that became kind of the anthem of his ministry for years to come. And a new generation of believers, y'all, we need to take up that call. Because the American dream is still being sold to us. Don't buy it. I'm not saying wealth is bad or that working hard is bad. I'm saying the wholehearted pursuit of your whole life in order to achieve 25 years of comfort instead of looking forward to 100,000 years and more in eternity with the Lord, that's just insanity. Is it costing you anything to follow Jesus? Is it costing you anything to advance the gospel? He says he purchased you. He purchased you. He bought you, church, with a price. So glorify God, 1 Corinthians 6, in your body. Look at your life like a budget. Get real practical. Is it costing me anything? Or when the time to follow Jesus starts to get costly, do I go the other way because it's not worth it? And I would rather chase the dream. Verse 25, let's keep going. And now I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. It gets pretty like weighty right there. And here's the second cost that I see in this. Building a faithful church requires cherishing and proclaiming, both cherishing and proclaiming, the full gospel of repentance, grace, and the kingdom. I love that Paul articulates the different facets of the gospel right next to one another. He reminds them the gospel is one of repentance and faith. So let me articulate this for you. Let's get real clear about this gospel. A gospel that does not call you to turn from your sin is not the gospel. The sermons that we preach here week in, week out, they're not tips for better living with a little Jesus sprinkled on top. The gospel we preach and the gospel all of our members live by is one that owns how sinful we humans really are. We have hearts prone to wander. They desire to lie, cheat, steal, whatever it takes to preserve our own self-interest. We're sinners. But God and his grace invites us to turn from that, not just to build on top of that, but to turn from it. And by faith, the gospel of repentance and faith invites us to redemption through Christ. Listen, that's the next thing. A gospel that does not offer you salvation by God's grace alone is not the gospel. It's verse 24. The gospel starts with God, not with you. He's offered you grace, not because you deserve it, but because he loves you. And the hardest part of the gospel, I think, to surrender your pride because you cannot climb your way up to heaven. You got to kneel your way there. And the gospel is an announcement of grace because you can't earn it. It's plain and simply the announcement of a gift from God that we get to receive. Jesus died to pay the price for our sin and freedom is found in dying, repenting, dying to your old life and receiving. As you turn, you receive. You don't build the new life for you. You receive new life from Christ. Have you ever counted that cost and then received the gospel of God's grace? 
And listen, lastly, as he talks, he says he preached the kingdom, right? A gospel that, that forgets the kingdom. It's not the gospel. The great hope of the gospel is that death's not the end for us. Because Jesus defeated death and ascended into heaven, so will we. It's the hope of the church. In fact, the church now here on earth is just meant to be a sign, a kingdom representative showing what heaven will be like, sacrificing for one another as any has need, worshiping alongside of those from other ethnicities and income levels as brothers and sisters in Christ, serving each other with joy, and the watching world will take notice. Christ told us they would. Because you could, listen, we could build a church. Notice, Paul has not talked about the number of people in the church once. How do you grow? That's not, that's not how do you grow a lot of people into a church? We could build a big flashy church. Maybe one where everyone is really moral or upstanding, but it will not be a faithful one if the full gospel is not preached. There's this letter at the uh, end of the Bible called Revelation. And in the first part of it, there's an announcement to seven different churches. One of them is this very church, the Ephesian church. And it says, you did everything right. You did. You did everything right. But this one thing I have against you, you lost your first love. You lost it. You lost the gospel. Are you willing to count the cost of repenting, of turning from your sin? And y'all, I'll be honest. I think for a long time, um, we in the church have watered down the gospel sometimes. And because of that, we made it a cheap gospel and didn't show you the cost of. you got to turn. Repent, turn. Uh, Are you willing to actually count that cost, turn from the future you could have without God's involvement, and then receive the grace of Christ through faith in his death and resurrection? There's no greater cost in this world, and yet Paul's going to say there is not anything that can be compared to knowing Christ. Verse 28. He's going to get real specific to the elders. Be on guard for yourselves. I'm going to read you to verse 32. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert. Remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. And now, I commit to you God, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. Listen, there's a way I'm going to say it. I've been like working on this phrase. Not sure exactly how to say it, but look, building a faithful church, it costs the attentive security of the elders against external and internal threats. Or maybe a shortened way to say it is, it's going to cost us defense against wolves. Specifically, he addresses the function of elders in the church. And I want to make sure you're clear on it. Understand, it informs how we function here. The elders, plural, more than one, there's a whole group of them that are in this room listening to Paul, We at Mercy Church have multiple elders that lead our church. They do not rule our church. They lead our church, submitted to Christ who rules our church. Scripture says he is the head. 
Then we've got a group of elders. You heard a few of them preach while I was out. I am one of them. We desire right now, we need many more of you to become elders. This is not my church. This is Christ's church. I'm one of its pastors. I'm so grateful to be so. It says, be on guard, elders, first for yourselves, then for the flock. Can you think of that like, um, like if you've ever flown on an airplane, you know, and the people come in there and you always pay attention to what the people, the flight attendants say while they're there before takeoff with the instructions, right? And so since you always pay very good attention <laughs> while they're doing that, you're going to know what I'm talking about, where they say, hey, in case we're going into crash landing scenario, the first, these things are going to fall down, put your own mask on before you help your child, because if you're passed out, you can't help anybody, right? That's in effect what Paul is saying here. They got to attend to their own souls because the enemy is going to come after them. That's why I do one of those things like the, that couple of weeks off, to guard myself. So I get up every morning and spend time with the Lord to guard myself. But here's what the elders are to do. They're to shepherd the flock. Elders, pastors, shepherd, these words are interchangeable in the Greek. We must shepherd. It means feed and protect. Feed with the word and prayer. Protect by attentiveness to threats. This is very difficult. That's what he's getting at. It's spiritually exhausting because in our own power, we can't see the wolves. They're dressed like sheep. That's how they get in. Wolf comes in actively intent on hurting others, the external ones. Let me give you an extreme. I know what you're thinking is, what does it actually functionally look like? Let me give you an extreme example that's a little more obvious. Um, It's still real. And then maybe one that helps you understand this rising up from within the ranks. One of the more extreme ones would be the reality in our day of sexual predators who will come in to try and steal and take away and kill those in our midst and destroy them. So we put ample security checks in place in our kids' ministry because we want our church, we want to be a church that protects the vulnerable among us. We put an officer here every week because if we get a whiff of a predator, we're sending you straight to him or her, period. And let me talk for a second about the ones who will, though, rise up from within our own ranks, even harder to detect, who will become wolves. I struggle with this part of the passage the most this week because of how sobering it is, but I've been in ministry long enough to see it happen. Faithful Christians become wolves that would take people away with them. Right now, it's often being called um, a process of deconstruction and often seeking to take others with them. Uh, Again, told you I'd reference Dr. Piper again. In 1989, he preached a message to his church in Minneapolis, and it is just as applicable what he said about um, wolves then as it is now. So I'm going to borrow his words and cited them in the manuscript if you want to look it up later. He said... The sign that someone's drifting away from Christianity, and not just into unbelief, but into distorting truth in a way that will lead others, is an emotional disenchantment, listen, an emotional disenchantment with faithfulness to what is old and fixed, and an emotional preoccupation with what is new or fashionable or relevant to the eyes of the world. In other words... They no longer love the word of God. Psalm 19 is no longer true of them that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, that it's sweeter than honey and dripping on the honeycomb. No, no. 
That's no longer true. Now it's, no, I'm loved and preoccupied by and enchanted by the winds of societal change. And I'm frustrated that my God won't adapt to my culture. And that is always the sign that someone is going the route of uh, eventually not only leaving the faith, but distorting. They'll either just leave altogether or distort Christianity to match the societal change of their day and then try to bring others along with them. This is why we devote ourselves to the teaching of faithful doctrine. It's my main job is to teach the word of God as faithfully as I can to train up others to do the same. That's why I say, maybe you feel like you have the gift of teaching. Are you willing to submit to our elders and grow in that? The ones who are charged by God to protect sound doctrine. This is what keeps me up at night, just like Paul. We might not do everything right in this church. Our facilities may be tough at times and our ministries may go through transitions, but my job remains steadfastly to shepherd you. I do so with joy and with tears. I've shed many tears over Mercy Church. Um, in fact, I shaved because my beard was getting so white. I was like, I'm too young to be Santa Claus. But it's just like, <laughs> I mean, they are growing grayer. My hair is growing grayer each year joyfully. And I'll gladly continue as long as the Lord will let me. And this is why we need more elders, of course. Our church is growing by God's grace. The craziest thing is I talk with other pastors just about uh, different situations. I'm so grateful for what the Lord is doing among us. But we need more watchers more teachers, more shepherds. We need more deacons. They devote themselves, deacons devote themselves to meeting the needs of the church so the elders can watch, teach, and pray. That's why you who have been gifted by God, maybe in teaching, maybe in serving, maybe in leadership, whatever, you need to be able to say, I'm willing to forego the opportunity cost of spending my time on me and jump in and be a part of a movement where lost are being found and the found are being raised up and the raised up are being sent. Let's keep going. Verse 33. A couple more verses here. We'll get to verse 38. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that I worked with my own hands to support myself and those who are with me. In every way, I've shown you that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and remember the words of the Lord Jesus because he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Listen, y'all, a faithful church finds joy in giving. Finds joy in giving. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Paul's like, I haven't coveted anyone's stuff. I've even earned a living from tent making while with you to make sure you knew I wasn't in it for the money. Covetousness will spoil relationships. It will hinder the work of the gospel since those who are seeking to advance themselves materially, if they are, man, they'll be tempted to evaluate all their context and uh, all their contacts and ministry opportunities in terms of what it'll do for them. In other letters, Paul applauds the church for funding the ministry and for funding the pastors who lead it. But here in Ephesus, he warns them against covetousness and says, listen, remember Christ is more blessed to give than to receive. So should you give to financially to the ministry of the gospel? Absolutely, but voluntarily and out of joy. And our elders should not only lead in that practice of generosity, but guard our hearts against covetousness so that we can lead you to do the same. And the best way to guard against greed is giving. But hardly anyone in here would admit they struggle with the sin of coveting, of desiring what others have. We all do, but it's tough to admit. 
It's one of the most deceptive of all sins, and we have it on a cultural level. And the antidote is gospel-motivated generosity. It's giving. The more you give, the more joy you will find in Christ, I promise you. And if you don't believe me, try it. Just try it. Right? Forever I've told you, look, I've said this for six years. You should give your money to the local church. And I believe in this church, so I got no problem telling you to give it to this one. My family does. And we're always looking for more ways of the Shelton's are to give to it because we believe in it. But you got some church baggage, some church hurt you're coming in here with. Don't give here. I don't want that to get in the way of what God wants to do in your heart. Just give somewhere else. Give to one of our nonprofit ministry partners here in Charlotte, like Congregations for Kids. The point is, give. Give somewhere and see what God does to you as you do. Let me finish up. Verse 36. We're going to 36 through 38. I told uh, our prayer team, I said, you know, sometimes pastors try to preach multiple sermons in one sermon because they're kind of excited to be back. You're welcome. You get five. All right, but look, we're almost done. Verse 36. After he said this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. There were many tears shed by everyone. They embraced Paul and they kissed him, grieving most of all over his statement. They would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Y'all listen, a faithful church accepts the cost of sending. Our theme, the series is You Are Sent. I believe one of Mercy Church's callings to Charlotte is to train up and send out church planters, church plants, and to revi- help revitalize churches. I believe that's, that's to be both here in Charlotte and around the world, but it's not easy. All right, this is not some cool new fad of ministry. Truthfully, it's just hard. There's pain involved. We went through some of it recently and still are, I think, when some dear friends go to plant a church that we get to send out from right here in our midst. We'll go through it again next year when we send more friends to go and plant a church across the globe. Being a sending church means we're planning to go. We're planning to send. And we're planning for those that we love to one day leave. Maybe some of you have never seen a loving, tear-saturated gospel goodbye. I grew up seeing two church splits that were very unhealthy. It wasn't until my mid-20s that I saw a church faithfully and lovingly send out brothers and sisters to the work that God was calling them to, but that's a faithful church. We don't hold God's resources with closed hands, but with open hands. And so we embrace and kiss and grieve and send off And then you know what those Ephesian elders did next? They went back to Ephesus and got to the work that God had called them to of building a faithful church and then multiplying that church across the region. Because the church was about one man, but that one man wasn't Paul. It was Jesus. And Jesus had already told them, I will be with you to the ends of the age. Even when Paul leaves for good. Listen, some of you need to step out of your community group and plant a new one because you've got 82 people in an 800-square-foot apartment right now. (laughs) We're busting at the seams as a church, 
And I know what you're thinking. I don't know. I don't want to say goodbye. You're going to have to be willing to say a gospel goodbye of sorts, even though we'll still be right here together. But that's in order to take your next step of obedience. I don't know what the future holds, but I know in January, I told you we were hoping to plant two churches in the next five years. And not surprisingly, I drastically underestimated what the Lord would do. We'll be there by next summer. Who knows what we're going to do. I'm not going to, I'm done trying to put numbers on that. Um, what I do know is that we do not aspire to be a cruise ship that tries to entertain everyone who comes on board. We are an aircraft carrier, best analogy I can give you. We're trying to train up and deploy God's people to bring about a gospel awakening here in Charlotte that is carried to the ends of the earth. I hope you will join us in that if you haven't yet. I hope you will count the cost. I believe that it is worth it. I don't think Paul would have preached this. I don't think Luke would have written it down. And the spirit and all of his wisdom that far surpasses anything we could ever know would have left it for us. If it isn't true, that it's worth it. That it's worth it to give your life to something greater than yourself and greater than your own purposes. But it will cost you. Will you count that cost and join what God is doing? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for the hope we have in Christ. Thank you. God, thank you for the, the privilege and joy that it is to shepherd your church. I pray for my brothers and sisters here. God, in your kindness, would you convict them? Convict them from where, in whatever area of life, they're choosing to try and hang on and say it's not, it's not worth it. God, I pray that you would show them the joy, the joy of obedience, the joy of surrender, the joy of following you. God, we love you. We're so grateful, so grateful for what you've done. In fact, y'all, before I even close this prayer, I want to give you just a second to respond on your own. Um, you hear these five different costs, but you there with the Lord, just respond to the Lord. Maybe it's you've been hesitant to step in out of fear. Maybe it's not even involvement to the church. Maybe it's you've been hesitant to believe the gospel, and it's out of, out of fear, uncertainty, and you've been trying to count the cost. Maybe today, today's the day that you respond saying, yes, Lord, I believe I believe. Maybe it's some kind of commitment that the Lord is calling you to. I don't know what it is. You take a second there with the Lord. I'm counting the cost, Lord, and I'm choosing you, whatever that is. God, help us. Help us to find joy in obedience. Thank you for your love. Oh, thank you for your grace. We praise you in the holy name of Christ. Amen.